Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Doing stuff is overrated. Like Hitler, he did a lot, but don't we all wish he would have just stayed home and gotten stoned? Previously on the Very Bad Wizards podcast. There's all kinds of research, dude. There's no, don't pretend like you've actually looked. I don't know. There's something platonic about it or Kantian. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. They're not trying to enforce gender stereotypes. They're trying to sell dolls. I, you want a government to control? It's not my premise. You're being so thick-headed about this. It's not sexism. It's not sexism when people want to do different things. That's not sexism. You, did you think that my argument was simply about chemistry? chemistry I thought sets? it was about getting women into the math and sciences because that's what you kept. That's stupid, dude. That's like saying, of course not. But. No, we're not. Oh. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, why do you have to be such a hater? <laughs> I, I didn't know I was a hater until you went on Facebook and started accusing people of being haters. And I was like, oh, uh, Tam, Tam, Tamler has a point. Maybe I'm a hater. Maybe y'all are haters. Maybe y'all are haters. Y'all are, are you going to... So I, I took a sleeping pill by mistake in the middle of the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> and then well, a lot of you have been reasonably criticizing, I guess, my somewhat reasonably criticizing my position in the last episode. And for some reason, without like I just turned into a different person, actually, which is very relevant to what we're talking about. Oh, today, yeah. And accuse people of being haters. I never use the word hater. And I don't say y'all because I'm from Boston. <laughs> and so what the fuck? You <laughs> Speaking of what your true self is and what your true self isn't, we have an expert on the show. Uh, you're our second repeat guest, Josh Nob. Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me again. Welcome. Uh, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. Don't I sound professional? Thank you for coming <laughs> onto our show. Uh, actually, we're in my apartment at Duke. I didn't say I'm Dave Bazaar from Cornell University, but I assume that I don't have to say that every time. And we are here because there was a local conference. Tamler is in-house. Josh Nob is in-house. I think this is the first time we've ever recorded with three people in the same room, which yeah. is it's a little awkward because I can see the faces of displeasure so close <laughs> As we hug and smell, I can smell the yeah, dish yeah. blood. Well, I can smell no last. <laughs> um, yeah, you guys were really snuggled up on the last episode. It wasn't, it wasn't difficult. It wasn't. So one of the things that that we had said last time was let's get Shua 
uh, Josh back on the show because there's so much to talk about. And as we were just right now thinking about, well, what the hell was it that we want to talk about? We, re- we remembered a few things. One, you just wanted to get him mad. Right. So I, that might be another, a, like a continued goal. And I, I guess. I don't th- <laughs> For some reason, it seems even more impossible. <laughs> We've just been hanging out for the weekend. And I'll do my best, but I can't promise anything. <laughs> and uh, two, there was a study that, that Josh did in collaboration with Kurt Gray. Who else? Paul Bloom, Paul Bloom, Lisa Feldman Barrett, and Paul Bloom Mark cheats Shesky. on me all the time. <laughs> he fucks around. I know, man. Doing cool studies without me. Mm. Uh, and this was a, a study on. Really, it was about mind perception, right? In, in the tradition of Kurt Gray's theory of, of you can view view morality as a dyadic interaction with an agent who commits a harm and a patient who receives it. And there are all sorts of uh, cool predictions that arise from this. Uh, patients who are harmed, like the, the recipients of harm, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the features of a patient is they have to have feelings and emotions, the sorts of things that are responsive to harm. Agents, meanwhile, are more intentional. They're the ones doing the action. Um, so what Kurt and his collaborators have shown is that agents get rated high on things like uh, intentionality and uh, patients get rated high on things like feelings and empathy and this is some work done with josh no but this is all just this this meaningless drivel to get to the heart of the study you guys took was the was it that book of porn stars yeah, yeah. in their clothes and out of their clothes so tell yeah. us why so how does this come out of of uh, wait yeah such a sophisticated view of morality first of all what book is this <laughs> we'll put a link to it you know this book is actually a, every scientist's dream it's a perfectly controlled study within a book so it's a series of studies of porn stars, and each porn star is depicted with clothes and without clothes, but in exactly the same position, with exactly the same facial expression, everything the same except for just whether they're clothed. So we now have exactly the stimuli that we needed in order to conduct a study of the impact of being clothed. The stimuli. (laughs) What's interesting is if we ever wanted to do a study on the perceptions of being drunk, I have perfectly controlled screenshots of Tamler at the beginning of the episode and Tamler at the end of the episode. Glazed over eyes. So explain the study. Because I'm just hearing about this pretty much for the first time. Well, so like David says, Kirk Gray was really the lead force behind the study. But we were just wondering, what is the impact of thinking about someone in terms of their body? So... Normally, maybe you just think about someone's ideas, you're thinking about their plans or something. What happens when instead of thinking about the things that they do, you're thinking about their embodiment? So one kind of thing you might think is when you think about someone's embodiment, you're like objectifying them. You're seeing them as just like a mere object, like this table or this glass. And then we were wondering whether that was true. So we conducted a series of studies in which we um, have participants either uh, thinking about someone just in terms of, you know, other attributes of them or thinking about their embodiment. And one way we did this is by either showing people clothed or naked. So the key question is, what impact would that have on their mind? So one possibility you might think is it just makes you see them as less having a mind. Like you think of them overall as just sort of less having mental states. But what we found was something much more complex and maybe more interesting. So it's that you see them as less having one part of the mind, but more having another part of the mind. So when people take off their clothes, you see them as being less capable of planning, self-control, acting morally, forming and executing these intentions. But you see them as more capable of having another part of the mind, more capable of feeling upset, feeling afraid, experiencing pleasure. So in other words, 
you're thinking of them as less having these cap- capacity for distinctively agentic states, but more as having a capacity for experience. So let me ask the obvious question. I mean, mm-hmm. let's say you have a moral objection to porn. I, don't, I, I can't even conceive of what that could be, but let's just say <laughs> that you did. Also, you think, and probably legitimately, that they might be afraid, you know, if this is, if they're in a somewhat threatening situation, 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 situation or, or you, know, you control the, for that. Absolutely. That could explain the result of this one study. But we tried to get people to think about the, uh, the uh, person's depicted body in all sorts of different ways. So another way was just by asking you whether the person is physically attractive. So in one condition, you're asked that, and the other condition, you're not. What impact does that have on how you think of that person's mind? So an obvious thought would be it just makes you think less of them as having a mind. You just see them as an object for your own aesthetic enjoyment. But that's not what happens. What happens is it makes you think less that they have this one part of the mind, but more that they have another part of the mind. You're seeing them more as something like an animal. You're seeing them as having those, the, more of those parts of the mind that other animals have and less of the parts of the mind that are sort of distinctively human. So did the did this mm-hmm. participants in the study know that they were porn stars that they were looking at in the first study? No. No, okay. They just might have <laughs> just naked people. How, why did they? Right in that study that um, David is talking about, there were three different conditions. So there's a condition in which people are clothed, a condition in which people are just standing around naked in the way that they might in a classy photography book, and a condition in which we just gave them pornographic images. And the striking thing is that the pattern just the effect just keeps getting magnified. So. If you show someone clothes, they think they are capable of a little bit of emotion, naked, even more emotion. And then when they're depicted in this full-on pornographic image, far from seeing them now as like sort of mechanized, like mere robots or something, you think of them even more as being capable of feelings and emotions. And, le- and less of agency. Exactly. So what other questions did you ask them to, de- to determine this? Um, so we asked them about how capable they were of, of feeling a certain collection of states, and there were two groups of states that all cohered very well with each other. They were all intercorrelated. So on one hand, there were questions like, is this person capable of self-control, acting morally, um, planning? On the other hand, are they capable of feeling afraid, feeling upset, experiencing pleasure? So it seems like the role of being um, seen in terms of your body is more complex. In many cases, it's this is exactly the opposite of what you would want. You'd want people to be seeing you as someone who's capable of agency, capable of really making a difference in the world, capable of carrying out, carrying out plans. But you could imagine, in some cases, thinking exactly the opposite. Maybe you think, these people all think I'm really effective. They think I'm really capable of carrying out my goals. But they don't care at all about how I feel. They've not noticed that I'm capable of feelings at all. They're not worried. Maybe I'm having a bad day. And in those cases, you actually are having the opposite problem, which could you, you want to sort of move them in the opposite direction. So the bottom line is, if you want somebody to consider your feelings, you just need to take off your clothes, <laughs> and then they'll consider your feelings, right? That's the take-home message. So just, for most people, for most I can't believe that such obvious research was published. Actually, so, when I take off my shirt, everybody knows I'm feeling shame. So it's, not, it's that's the way that works. So you know, for most practical purposes, uh, I think that would be a terrible way of achieving this objective. But, <laughs> But even though uh, I think on a practical level, you, you wouldn't be able to achieve this objective by taking off your clothes. Maybe it reveals <laughs> like, a, like a deeper fact about this kind of duality in our ways of thinking about people. That it's not that we think of people sometimes as having more mind, sometimes as having less mind. There's a kind of trade-off in what kind of mind you see people as having. So 
the more that you are exhibiting these characteristics of agency, the more you're, you know, writing amazing papers about free will and critiquing your opponent's arguments and so forth, the more they'll see you distinctively as an agent, and the more they might just forget, you know, maybe Tamler's having a bad day. And so that's, that's interesting. That's why we need to remind people of our bodies when we're writing papers on free will. <laughs> there's, a, there's a dear friend, philosopher of mine, who does this by wearing tight jeans. <laughs> but I was going to ask, is there a gender... So does this happen more for naked... Uh, depictions of women, or is it the effect just as strong for... You know, that's a really striking thing about this study, is that there's no effect of gender either way. So there's no effect of the gender of the participants in the study. Men and women show this effect completely equally. Mm -hmm. And there's also no effect of the uh, gender of the person being depicted. So both men and women are seen in the same way when 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 they're depicted in terms of their bodies. So both men and women are seen more... Inter- as having emotion, less as having these other kinds of psychological states when they're sort of taking off their clothes. And if mm-hmm. you think about even, if you look at images of men who are, say, like really jacked and when they take off their clothes, they're revealing this really muscular bod, mm-hmm. they still get that same effect. So mm-hmm. in some way, it's like they're depicting this capacity they have for agency by taking off their clothes. They're depicting like this potency they have of being really strong or something. But that still has the same effect. It makes you see them. You remember that Simpsons? where Marge is painting Mr. Burns. And it's exactly this point, right? Is that that when she paints him naked, that finally people see Mr. Burns as being vulnerable and having feelings. And uh, he was just a machine of agency and and will. (laughs) (laughs) So the idea is, and then I want to talk about when you say the negative side of this, but just to make sure I understand the idea, there's only like, there's just like a, baseline of how much mind we can consider people to have and then it's a zero-sum game in that if i think they have more planning i'm going to see they have less feelings if i see they see them as having more feeling then i'm going to see them as less age cognitive agency well, it's not necessarily a zero-sum in that some things could decrease one without increasing the other but in this study what, what we're finding is that this manipulation though decreasing one thing in exactly the way you, you'd expect is, in a really surprising way, increasing the other thing. So what do you say the negative or, like, or the, the more pessimistic implications Well, of, of course, I mean, there are a lot of problems that people face in which people are ignoring their agency, that people aren't taking seriously their capacity to have really important ideas, to have plans that are worth carrying out, to be able to execute their intentions. And that's something really terrible. And we don't mean to in any way uh, detract from the importance of that. It's just that there's also a, another very different kind of problem that you can have, a problem where people see you, say, exclusively in terms of your capacity for agency and neglect the thought that you also have feelings as well. And you shouldn't be thinking that there's this one thing, something like dehumanization or objectification, which is a unified phenomenon whereby you think people have less of both of these things. You should right. think there are these two separate things, like something like seeing someone as merely a robot and seeing someone as merely an animal. Right. Of course, seeing someone as merely an animal is something really bad, but seeing someone as merely a robot is also really bad. And sometimes the way to get out of the one is exactly the thing that moves you into the other. So if you reduce people's sense that you're an agent, um, uh, do you get more lenient judgments of responsibility? So is one strategy to be found less culpable um, to actually take off your clothes? <laughs> Lesson number two. Lesson number two. <laughs> as soon as you do something bad, just Where, take off your clothes. Speaking yeah. of The Simpsons, like, remember when Flanders wears that really tight uh, ski outfit? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, the, the, in our study, then Homer pictures him, right? Stupid, when he's trying sexy to have sex. Flanders. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's so much better. Like <laughs> Simpsons instead of Star Trek references. Uh, we're going to get so to Star happy. Trek references in a second. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. Spock or something. Yeah. You see it coming. So, you know, that's an awesome idea for a study and we didn't do it. Maybe if, if you're trying to be seen as less responsible, being seen more in terms of your body is exactly the secret to doing that. But the last study of our paper did something a little bit different that's still along the same lines. So it's sort of a modified version of the famous Milgram experiment. So in the Milgram experiment, people give you electric shocks and end up really harming you. So what we told people is, this is a different kind of version of a study like that. What you're supposed to do is really be caring for this person and make sure you don't harm this person. So you can shock this person, but not too much, so much that it will hurt, really hurt them. So you should have to pay attention to not go above what's really going to harm this person. And then, just as you'd expect, the difference between conditions is just how much skin the person is showing. <laughs> and mm. the more skin he shows, the less people injure him. Hmm. Interesting. So is that because they see them as more vulnerable, easier to harm, or that they – you like, did you also do the judgments about the feelings? Just <laughs> We to- didn't. We, I mean, we are just positing that as a mediator, but we didn't measure that. So the, at least the theory we developed is that it's explained by that exact phenomenon we observed in the other studies that – that some people, I don't know, when you think of Noam Chomsky or something, you don't think, you don't think, ah, oh, you know, maybe Noam Chomsky's having a bad day today, maybe he's feeling a little bit down. Isn't he always having a bad day? <laughs> you just think he's just this power whereby, like, cognitive science comes into the world or something. And to the extent that you're seen in that way, people are just not really that worried about harming you. They, they don't think, oh, maybe if I write something mean about Chomsky in my paper, he'll feel sad or something. You don't think of him as having that capacity to feel bad, to be the patient, you think of him as this sort of being of pure agency. And when you're seen as a being of pure agency, you can remove that by showing right. some skin. So, and, and obviously showing skin isn't the only way to do this. I would assume that being emotionally expressive, like for instance, Josh is being right now, uh, having a <laughs> smile, displaying emotions, um, mm-hmm. does that have, so that I, I assume would, would raise uh, patiency ratings, but does that also have the paradoxical effect of reducing agency? If I, if I am, for instance, the hypothetical where I am emoting quite a bit um, and I, smiling or frowning or, or just being expressive, it, am I seen as less agentic? Because that doesn't strike me as... You know, we haven't tried that either, but just if I just try making a guess about how the study would come out, my guess would be that it depends on which emotion you show. That if you show anger, that doesn't right. decrease your agency at all. Right. If you show sadness, it does. Yeah. That there's certain emotions that are specifically, I don't know, the patience emotions. Or there are agentic emotions, right? Yeah. Anger is about, about getting something done. Sort of. maybe, so, you know, maybe it would cut under approach avoidance. You know, we observed that exact phenomenon that you're talking about with the ultimate of all agencies, agents, which is God. So we asked participants... I, you mean Jesus? Okay. We, we asked, so we asked participants. A little anti-Semitic. <laughs> Jesus was Jewish. <laughs> Asshole. About now you tell us. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Go, go ahead. ahead. So we asked participants about um, all different kinds of emotions that God can have. And so we asked, you know, can God feel pleasure? Can God experience sadness? Can God feel angry? And then... Everyone insists that God can feel angry. And then we observe this order effect where after um, people say that God can feel angry, then they have to agree that he feels all the other emotions. So you say, can God feel joy? Can God feel pleasure? Can God feel angry? Then they'll say, 
pleasure? No. Uh, anger? Uh, yeah, I guess so. But after they've said God feels anger, then if you ask them if he feels pleasure, then they're absolutely, he has to be able to feel right. right. We actually saw proof that God <laughs> or Jesus can feel pleasure. Oh, uh, this is horrible. <laughs> was, Tell the story. There was a slide. What, what was this in? This is for the moral scrupulosity talk. Right. That showed a picture of Jesus on the cross with just a raging heart, a, a fairly well-hung Jesus with like a raging heart on. Pun. You realize that? Oh, oh no! Oh, I didn't mean. That. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, and Chandler was sitting in the back, and he had to like move up to the front to see this. Uh, uh, yeah, so the talk was on moral scrupulosity about people who, who um, can't get out of their mind that they're going to do something wrong, um, and they obsess over it and over and over again. They have to, like, pray to get the thought out of their head, and it's like sort of like OCD. Anyway, <laughs> yes. So this is one of a series of studies that you're doing on, on the self. Maybe tell us a little bit. Should no, we talk, talk about, about the that? context of because there's a body of work that that um, you you've been seeking to sort of add some theoretical clarity to it and and then generate some some novel predictions and that that is to answer the question like how do we uh, make sense of other people and how how do we determine what actions for instance and thoughts and feelings we should attribute to some deeper source of themselves what you call true self the re- uh, they're, they're, they're re- who's the real them who's the real, real josh nope who's the real dave pizarro right uh, so, so give an example of, of uh, a true self versus a non-true self yeah yeah like like say you just you're starting out making music and you just feel like you're supposed to do it this certain way because that's the way everyone else does it around you and then suddenly you start to realize that that's not it's not really working for you then you start playing music in this really different way and you you end up you can kind of get this feeling like it's not that i changed it's that desire to play this kind of music that was who i really was all along and so now that i'm doing it this way it's that i'm more fully expressing the person than i really was all along back when i back before when i was doing it this other way it was just kind of inauthentic in some respect or another example from a very different kind of domain is um sometimes when um people are addicted to drugs then they finally get clean you have this feeling like it's not like the urge to do these drugs and the urge to get clean. Those were both just equally really parts of themselves. You get a feeling it's different. It's that that their true self, the person that they really were, that's only been revealed after they finally kicked this habit. I mean, you know, so um, it's interesting with drugs. I'd say this is especially true with alcohol, that we have sort of conflicting it notions about what alcohol does on the one hand you could say that wasn't me i was just that was just i was so drunk you know like that that wasn't me speaking um or on the other hand we have this idea that alcohol brings out who you really are because it takes all the you know all the disguise and the masks that you put on during the day alcohol or, does know, away like with sleeping pill tamler versus non <laughs> yeah, exactly. was that joking that- aside like that just wasn't i mean <laughs> It just wasn't me. Like, I don't, don't talk like that. I don't think, like, I mean, Dave, well, you even made a joke long before we knew we were going to do this topic. I mean, not long. It was two days ago. <laughs> it was, uh, but uh, that, that this was the real me coming out or something. Yeah, like it was yeah. a genuine, sensitive, Tamler, <laughs> white, hip-hopper, hugs. Um, but I would but actually point out that what you're saying, when we talk about the true self, you're, this is a way to explain how others perceive 
have social perceptions is not that you're making a claim that there is a true self or that there is some fact of the matter that you're discovering about people's actual true selves. Yeah. Just that that's the way that we view others. Like it's a real question that we ask ourselves, ask ourselves either explicitly or implicitly. Was Tamler under the influence of a sleeping pill? Was that more him than Tamler not under the influence of a sleeping pill? Right, and you might think people are silly to care about this idea or to think there's something like an essence of the self. But there's still a scientific question. How do people understand it? How do right. they make sense of this notion? Why do you think we ask ourselves that question? You know, a lot of people have uh, diff- different views about that question. But the reason I think it is, is that this is just the application to our view of the self of something much more general about how we think of things that we just think of a lot of things as having essences and the reason we see the self human beings as having essences is because we think of everything that way so if you talk about you know our nation the united states and you said you know how do you understand the united states a lot of people think well you know there's a lot of racism in the united states but that's not the essence of the united states that's not what the united states really stands for the united states really stands for is you know liberty or equal opportunity or something or if you're talking about um some band or something, you might say, you know, they played all this music, but what they were really about is that early bluesy stuff they did. Then later, this schlocky commercial thing, they were getting away from the true essence of what this band is really all about. And of course, we say that we're talking about people too, but it's not because there's something super special about how we think of people. It's because we just think of everything that way. So people think of human beings that way as well. So I... If that's true, then there still is a clear difference um, regarding what the essence of being a human is. So I've always thought of it as, well, what we need to do is, is reliably track um, and predict the behavior of others. And so what we want to know is, is Tamler on sleeping pill? Um, sorry to keep using the example, but it's perfect. Uh, is, when I say is that is true self, at some level, I don't even mean at the psychological level, I mean like maybe at the, at the level of selection or something, that what the question that I'm asking is, how is Tamler going to be in the future under a variety of situations? And so it might be a misguided way to predict reliably how Tamler's going to act in the future, but there is something about, if I think that it's his deeper self, Something has emerged that I want to get away from or if it was a bad thing because I actually think that in the future that deep self will emerge. That is, in some way, it's going to be more reliable. And I take it that is what it, what it means to say it's a deep self is that it is, it's, it is more likely to emerge across a variety of situations. You know, you might be right, but actually my inclination is in the opposite direction. So if you think about the part of yourself that most frequently arises, mm-hmm. so it's just like of all the parts of yourself – which is the most common to emerge, I don't think that's the one that people are going to pick out and be like, that is Dave's true self. In many cases, I think they would fully recognize that it's the one that's going to emerge most frequently is this other one. But still, they think that's not his real essence. The fact that it emerges all the time, that just shows that he's betraying the person that he most fundamentally is deep inside. Um, suppose someone's working on and on in this tradition that's just like, just writing these like papers about moral responsibility. Yeah. They get tenure, then they're like writing more papers and like getting more grants, whatever. And then everyone's sort of feel like this little voice within themselves that's just like, what am I doing? Why am I engaging this dried up academic watercolors? Yeah, like they think, you know, maybe they could do something more to life than just writing these kind of papers. And then they just start like, ah, oh, yeah, just forget it. I'm just going to go back and write even more of these papers. So now you have a Frankfurt just, case yeah, variation. Right. Then you could ask, okay, so what is that person's true self? Is 
is the person's true self, the thing that they most frequently do, being like, now here's a subtle variation on the variation of the variation on Frankfurt's original case, or is their true self that little voice that's speaking to them, being like, maybe there's something more to life than what you're doing? Well, so, so maybe what, mm. what I mean to say is not that it is mm. empirically the most correlated with, with behavior, but rather that it is a causal source that will emerge when shit goes down yeah. more often. So yeah. you can say, like, you know what? I, like, I know this guy is nice to everybody all the time, but at once I saw him get mad. And when I saw him get mad, I realized, like, this guy is actually misanthropic and vile. And so now I'm picking, I'm not picking on the basis of frequency, mm-hmm. which is a different claim than I was making earlier. I'm, I'm, I'm picking on the basis of under the conditions that I care most about, will he, you know. And when you really need to depend on a person, that's when you want to, their true self will, uh, will come out. Mm-hmm. So you could think about this like on the battlefield, you know, like what's the true self of the person? They may kind of go around with a lot of swagger, but if you think their true self is a coward, then... So it's not a frequency of prediction. It's just that. Uh, important. It's, it's the importance. It's the, 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 the deeper causal structures will let me know what this person is going to do when I really need them to do something, especially on, in the moral domain. Mm-hmm. Maybe we could talk about like the studies we did. And yeah. you, I don't know if you'd think... Oh, you have like, data on this? <laughs> this is what Josh always does. Yeah, we try to get, talk some interesting philosophy. Yeah, and he's he's like, got to bring in the data. It's like they've arrived right at the point that we were before we ran 10 studies. <laughs> uh, and maybe you could talk a bit about how, how your view isn't really a hier- hierarchical will view like mm-hmm. Frankfurt. It's only... Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, you, here. We'll give you, let you describe. We'll let you talk. <laughs> oh yeah. So we were interested in this question. You know, what do people think is the true self? And and uh, like Dave says, one common view is it's it's the part of the self that the person would endorse on reflection or something. Like when they really think about it, what do they think is the right uh, is the right thing? What is their their true self? So um yeah, we were thinking about this, and we started thinking about this guy. He's a real guy named um, Mark Pierpont, who um who uh, was at one point a really important figure in the sort of evangelical mu- movement to cure gay people of their homosexuality. But, you know, he had this problem, which was that he himself was actually gay. And so he was torn through this sort of inner conflict, and he really hated this aspect of himself. But he, so he, when he was being an evangelical, did he admit that he was gay or did he call himself a yeah, former abso- gay? No, absolutely. He, he, well, he admitted that he, he thought that he had been cured of this. Okay. But he, he had this inner conflict... And now the question that um, participants were asked is just which part of this conflict is his true self? So um, you could choose any of four options. So you could say, um, deep down inside, he's gay and he wants to be with other men. But then there's just this weird thing that maybe he picked up from his culture of just thinking that that's morally wrong. Or deep down, he's a Christian and he thinks this is morally wrong. But then there's some weird thing that he maybe picked up from his culture or something of being attracted to other men. Or they're both just superficial, or they're both who he is deep down. And then maybe you can just pause listeners to like make up the decision for mm-hmm. Okay, so then we asked participants this question, and then after asking it, we just asked them this one individual difference measure. So are you a liberal or a conservative? And so we could see how much, what each uh, political group thought about this question. We found it was something really striking. It was that liberals tend to say, in this case, it's just the emotion that's his true self. It's his desire to be with other men that's his true self. By contrast, conservatives tend to say both. Both the emotion and the belief are part of his true self. So just to put 
this within the philosophical tradition. The prediction, the Frankfurt view of the self is that the desires that you have that you endorse upon reflection, though that constitutes your true self. Watson has a view that the values that you have or what you judge to be best constitutes your true self. This view, as I take it, is not what the agent, him, himself in this case, judges to be best, but what actually is best. Exactly. So the whatever part of him actually is doing the right thing, however much that is, that constitutes, right? And the results support the, the, the third of those alternatives. Right. So it seems like it's this third alternative that's being supported. What's happening is that participants are picking out the part of this agent self that they think is really the best part, the most valuable part. And they're saying that is the true self. Whichever is the good part of you is your true self. And so then, of course, in, we had another condition. And that condition is just the reverse story. So participants were told, imagine this guy who travels around the world brings people this message that people of all sexual orientations should be treated equally. It's wrong to be prejudiced against gay people. But he himself feels this kind of disgust against gay people. And he just acknowledges this as part of his own struggle. And he tries to sort of, uh, as best he can, remove that from himself. So what is his true self? And here we just get the opposite. So what happens is that liberals tend to say both are part of his true self, his belief and the feeling. And conservatives tend to say, it's just the feeling. So he has, you know, he's just brought up in some politically correct culture, thinking that all sexual orientations should be treated equally. But then that voice of disgust, that's the voice of his true self <laughs> speaking to him, telling him, don't think that. And, and the assumption is that conservatives are more likely to be opposed to homosexuality and liberals are m most likely to be supportive and, and also homosexuals themselves. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. sorry. Uh, so in the first case, right, did, they, did the conservatives say both parts of it were, the, mm -hmm. were there? Okay, so it's a pure symmetry in the, in the two reactions. Right, I remember so, asking you about that after the talk. Right, so it seems like it's two different effects that's going, that are going on here. One is that people just have this general tendency to think emotion more than reason is the true self. And then secondly, they have a tendency to think whatever is good about you is your true self. So if they think the emotion is what good, what's good about you, they think just that is the true self. If both, if the emotion is what's bad and the reason is what's good, then they think both of those are religious. Oh, that's interesting. Now, what do you uh, what do you guys think? Because to me, this is so. There's such an obvious answer to all of these questions, which is both. Right. That all of that is like there's no point in trying to pick out one of those and say that's the true. That's the true. So what's his name? Say, so you're willing to say that under the influence of the sleeping pill, that was also. <laughs> <laughs> well. I mean, that's me on sleeping pills. <laughs> I mean, like, but this guy, this is how he is all the time, right? No, uh, this, this yeah. is actually a, a sense, uh, a fiery uh, Cushman last night over conversation brought this up as well in the case of a, of a pedophile, I guess, that they had just been talking about on NPR, This American Life. And it was a case of a kid who had realized that he was a pedophile at age 14. And by the time he was 16, he really was abhorred by his own, he had started looking at child porn. There's at one point he really abhorred that he had these feelings. He realized that, that they could really, really lead to bad things. And he decided to start a support group. And now he runs a support group for, for any young men who have these feelings because he, he really wants to help them. And, uh, but nonetheless, he self-identifies as a pedophile, uh, just one who is fighting it. So Fiery, and I share the intuition, I think that's what Tamler is sharing, is that he is both 
both of those things. He is a person who is morally good enough to to go around trying to make a difference and fight his urges, but he is also a pedophile. And if you forget, it's like the scorpion on the frog. If you forget for a second that he is also a pedophile, then you know shit might go down. But you would, might have him over to babysit your kid. But would you yeah. feel the same? Exactly. Would you feel the same way if the if you had a reversed version of that actual case? So imagine this guy. He lives in ancient Greece. And he just has no interest at all in being with kids. <laughs> he, he just, just on an intuitive, <laughs> like, emotional, <laughs> on an intuitive, like, emotional level, he just mm. thinks, oh, that sounds terrible. Like, I don't want to do that at all. But he lives in this culture where people say, you know, you know, being with young boys, that's something really important. And he's like, all right, I really should do that. Okay, I'm just going to make myself do that. And he, like, tries to do it. He has this feeling of disgust, and he's, like, trying his best to be with these boys. In that case, would you be like, well, both of them are his true self? No, just, no because I think that there's, a, there's com- yeah. I think that you're, there's a, a compound there of stopping to do something that you desire is, um, I think, reflective of your moral values, but starting to do something that you don't desire mm-hmm. is a very different feeling. That is to go out of your way to engage. So suppose that I really, I have no sexual feelings toward other men and I'm just out of sheer principle. I'm like, I'm going to try this and I hate it. I hate doing it. Um, I'm grossed out by it and I do it over and over again. I think that there you could say no, because my emotions um, are consistently aligned with this and it's difficult and effortful every single time I do it. Um, Wait, but it's difficult and effortful every single time that the pedophile you described well, doesn't hook it's up. Not, with. It's not. But, but see, this is the difference is that he is failing to do something. So he oh. could put himself in a room, right, lock the door and have the feelings and never, ever have to struggle with the, you know, a, a sexual opportunity right in his face mm-hmm. that he um, that he rejects. Like there are all kinds of other strategies to avoid the, the inaction. The, that distinction makes sense. Like, I, it seems weird to say, like, effortfully engaging in an action that you don't like to do would be just a re- as much a reflection of your true self as is trying to stop something that you really love. Well, what if it was like, I, I you know, I don't, I don't feel charitable at all, but I, you've judged <laughs> that it's the right thing to do, so I make an effort to, you know, always, you know, I sign up for a lot of subscription things where it's like automatic, a recurring donation every month because I know that I'm not going to want to do it every month. Wouldn't you call that part of my true self? So, yeah, that's a good question. And I don't know, I mean, if there is, and maybe I'm pushing it a little bit, but, but I, I still, to, to, to push this intuition, signing up for automatic deposit into a charity versus every single time the, uh, you get a paycheck, you painfully re- remove 10% and you begrudgingly go and give, give your tithe to your church or to, to whatever. My intuition is a bit different. Yeah. Wait, what if it was uh, to come up with a case that, because you know, you were making this distinction between acts and omissions. Mm-hmm. What if it was that there's this person who really believes strongly that it's, that he has this duty to, you know, um, step in when someone is engaging in bullying behavior and, um, and just physically prevent them from doing some bad thing. And he's just terrified on an emotional level. He just wants to run away. Mm-hmm. But he just forces himself to do just the opposite. And he just stands in and runs in. And it's just like, stop. You have to stop doing that. So structurally, it's the same as, as the case of the person who forces himself to, to be with young boys, except for that he's forcing himself to do something you regard as good. 
So in that case, would you say, no, that's not his true self. His true self is to just cowardly run away. But there is something different about going out. If he went out and found a bunch of instances in which somebody was bullying and stood there, you know, <laughs> like then, yeah, I would still say like, no, it's not. Right? Like if he was like looking, if he had like a little map of current bullying, like, went over to each of them and said, that's what's going on with the guy that you describe in Greece who's like trying to get himself to have sex with young people. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask this. So um, often with these kinds of philosophical questions, my first instinct is to say this is just bullshit. There's no such thing as a true self. And the answer to the question is just the question itself. Like whatever part of him, that's part of himself. And the other part is the other part of himself. And the idea that we have to choose one or identify one that's more authentic than the other is a philosophical trick. But that's why exactly that's not the question they're answering. They're asking. They're just asking, do normal people use a hierarchical will? Do they use a deep self? So it's all about perception. But then maybe what you're asking, Tamler, is, are, is do you have any account of whether or not they're right or wrong? Well, you know, I think it's not so much that we can directly answer whether people are right or wrong, but we can give a better account now of what it is that people are thinking that you could judge to be right or wrong. So I think what people thought before maybe is that this idea of the true self, it's something kind of like, I don't know, a scientific theory. It's like a view about what's going on within people's minds. There's like the part of the mind that's like the true self. But I think it's emerging from these studies that that's really mistaken. Like the different way to think about it is that it's more like a kind of judgment you might make about something that doesn't even have a mind. Like say you're reading through a novel or something, then you might think, there's something in this novel that's really the essence of the novel, like what this novel is really all about. Then there's this stuff in like chapter five, like why is it even there? It's ridiculous. It's totally pointless. It seems like in that case, we're thinking of something as being the essence of the novel, the core of the novel. Something else is just being superficial. It should be sloughed off in order to reveal what the novel is really all about. But that's not something like a scientific theory about the causal origins of the novel. It's a value judgment about the novel. It seems like what we're seeing when people make true self-judgments is something similar. It's a kind of value judgment about the self. So, so it's not – so this could differ from other views, which in some views that I've endorsed partially, which is that we're picking up on cues that one might think are reliable reflections of some aspect of that person's personality, and they tend to dominate. You're saying, look, we're just imputing our view of moral goodness and – calling that the true self we're just assuming that the good part of you is the deeper part of you in the absence of any other well, well you know i feel like there's a kind of projection that takes place on the part of scientists so all day long we're running all these studies trying to get a sense about the underlying causal springs of action and then we sort of think you know how do people ordinarily think about this stuff and then we think probably they're just doing the exact same thing we're doing they're just trying to come up with the things within other people that most predict their future behavior and so forth, all the scientific stuff that we do. But I think the evidence speaks against that. It doesn't suggest that that's what ordinary people are doing. It seems like ordinary people are, doing, are concerned with these questions that don't just have to do with scientifically predicting other people's behavior. They have to do with making sense of that behavior in a way that's very much wrapped up with this kind of value judgment. But how does that make sense of the behavior? Right. In what way does that make sense of, like, the, 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 the preacher's behavior? Well, you know, it's, if you think of making sense in the sense that um, a cognitive scientist want to make sense of it, then not at all. But if you think about uh, the case I gave, say, of a novel, I feel like you really are, in some sense of making sense, making sense of the novel when you say this. When you say, 
I've thought a lot about this novel, and I really understand what's going on now. It's that the real heart of it, the essence of it, what it's really about is is doing this certain thing. But then there's just this annoying stuff that they just put in because all 19th century novels had that. If you could only get rid of that, that would have been revealing what this novel was fundamentally about. Yeah, but hold on, because this this view this this view seems a little dangerous. Because you know, what, one of the things that that you guys attempt to explain, and we'll post a link to, we have two at least two papers on this now, mm-hmm. yeah, is that it can explain certain asymmetries in the way we make judgments and moral responsibility. Wait, it's so funny the way you so like you're just like certain asymmetries that <laughs> someone might have discovered some. Well, kind of like yeah, a, right. Okay, there's so. like a certain hypothetical cognitive scientist might have found an asymmetry. <laughs> <laughs> we found out we're not the only asymmetry that's documented, but yeah. So uh, this is with Eric Allman and, and Paul Bloom, um, sorry, and Peter Salve. So we, we show that people, when the question was, uh, when do you use information that, that an act was impulsive to reduce judgments of responsibility and blame? So when people, when we describe an agent who does something out of blind rage versus deliberately, People reduce judgments of responsibility. Um, but there is this weird asymmetry that we don't use the, that same rule for positive actions. And actually, Susan Wolf pointed this out before I knew she pointed it out. If you describe somebody who did something good, like donated to charity or gave money to a homeless man walking down the street, and you say that he did it calmly and deliberately, and compare those to a person who, who actually was just overwhelmed with sympathy describe it in this sort of like loss of control and therefore just gives the homeless man his money, those people don't get a reduction um, in their blame, even though presumably in their responsibility. Yeah, yeah, responsibility and praise. So there's this asymmetry. And I've always taken it that what you're doing is you're trying to infer. So our explanation was that what we're doing is we're inferring their meta desires. Like some people actually have the desire uh, to do good things. And so when they do bad things, like they get and they lose control because they lost control, they wish they hadn't, right? In a moment of cool, deliberate reflection, they say, I shouldn't be the kind of person who gets angry and hits somebody. But when they get overwhelmingly empathic and they give money to a homeless person, in moments of cooler deliberation, they endorse this and they say, I, I know that I'm sensitive, but I'm glad that I'm sensitive. And we actually explicitly appeal to the Harry Frankfurt hierarchical will. So, so one of the things that we did was we told people, imagine uh, a guy who over, he becomes overwhelmed with sympathy every time he walks by this homeless person, gives them $20, and when he deliberates about it, he thinks, I'm a sucker. I hate that this happens to me. I wish that I didn't deliberate. I wish I didn't have these empathic emotions. I, would be, I wouldn't be out 20 bucks every time I walk by this homeless person. There you get the asymmetry. There people are very willing to, to reduce judgments of praise. So for us, that's sensitive. So that information is being taken, that information about that specific person is being taken into account to make a responsibility judgment. So we're, we're seeking and using the information. So you're making overall a character judgment. You're yeah. trying to figure out whether it's a good person or a bad person. Right. But you, but in your view, you're just always assuming that they're a good person. Wait, but if I could fight back. So we tried oh, to... Oh, we're fighting? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's mad. It's happening. He's pissed. <laughs> <laughs> this is slightly less quiet. Wait, so we we were wondering which of those two accounts explains your effect. So uh, we wrote to Dave and asked for his exact stimuli. And then we ran a new study where we just gave people his exact stimuli that he used originally. And then we also gave them two other questions. So one was the question that you were just posing about meta desires. Did he actually want to want it? And the other question was a question about his true self. Does it express his true self, the person that he is deep down inside? And then true self does mediate the effect, but 
Metazires doesn't mediate the effect. I mean, honestly, the, the language of metadesires, did they want to want to do it, is a bit cumbersome. But your, your view relies on that they have some notion of their true self, that your question really tapped, and that that question really distinguishes between your view and my view. Wait, wait, so so I'm not can... following. What, what are the two? Do, the one question is, do they want to want to have it? The other question is, is this a reflection of their true self? Wait, so let me give you an example. Like, so consider the guy I talked about before. He's gay, but he thinks that's ter- completely wrong. And so he thinks he shouldn't be gay. It's really wrong to want to sleep with other men. So people think two things about this guy. On one hand, they think um, he doesn't want to want to be with other men. He wishes he didn't want that. On the other hand, they think being with other men, that's his true self. If he could just do the exact thing that he wishes he didn't want to do, that's what would be expressing his true self. Do you know we- yeah, this whole amount of desires thing? I feel like it's almost in many cases the opposite of the thing that you, when you reflect, you endorse it. That's often the opposite of what we consider to be the real you, that we think it's when you get so wasted, you can't even control yourself. That's when your true self comes out. Well, that's, yeah, that's what I was saying with drinking. It's like we have sort of opposing intuitions sometimes um, that your true self can be either revealed or can be uh, distorted. You know, when I was doing, with this paper that I just mentioned, it was done with two other really amazing researchers, uh, George Newman and Paul Bloom. And so George and Paul and I were sitting around one day and we were talking about this issue about drinking. And then Paul mentioned, you know, in Purim, there's this, in, this Jewish holiday, there's this right. rule that you have to get really, really drunk. Yeah. In fact, you have to get so drunk that you can't even tell the difference between the hero and the villain. Mordechai and, and Haman. Uh, yeah. yeah. Ah, so, very good. So now the a question of... Hadassah. I'm a real Jew. <laughs> Did you know that Esther's name was Hadassah before? Really? So, yeah. Wow. Why it's a massive cover-up. Why didn't I? Why? <laughs> yeah. oh, wait, so this question arises, why do you have to get completely drunk on Purim? And then there were all different views within... Um, uh, Talmud. Yeah. So one of the views was, was expressed with this following parable. So here's the parable. So in the old days, there used to be these people, a the, 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 uh, person like this was called the Shad Khan, and the Shad Khan's job was to arrange... We're in America. <laughs> so the Shad Khan's job was to arrange marriages. So she would just uh, try to talk with the man and talk with the woman and get them to really like each other. And then finally she convinced each of them. They're getting married. It's like her proudest day. She got all this thing, stuff to work out. And then on that day, her proudest day, the woman and man just banish her. They send her away because they say, now your work is done and we can just be together. So then um, these uh, people engaged in like understanding Jewish law say, the rule of Purim should be understood exactly like that. The power of reason within us, it's like the Shad Khan. It connects us with God. So you reflect on these issues, you think maybe God really exists. But then, once you've truly been united by, with God through, um, through the Shad Khan of reason, then you can just banish him. Right. It's that- right. And Purim is the celebration of completing one round of the Torah. So every Saturday, if you go to temple, you read one portion of the Torah, and then at the end... Oh, no, wait, it's that's Simcha's Torah. Torah. Yeah. yeah, totally fucked that up. Yeah. <laughs> so actually, the, the, what this means is that you should also get shit-faced on Simcha's Torah. <laughs> Every lesson number th- <laughs> lesson number three. <laughs> All right, lesson number one, take off your clothes so that people will understand your feelings. <laughs> you want to take a quick break? Yeah, let's take a break. We'll be right back to talk more Jewish Talmudic <laughs> debate. <laughs> Hello, 
back to Very Bad Wizards. We're here with Josh Nob. Just a couple of quick business things. You, know, you can email us. And God, I swear to God, next episode maybe we'll do. We've gotten so many good emails recently. And so we might devote an episode to just answering them. Can, we got to do less, fewer fiasco episodes. Yeah, they exactly. cause a lot of emails. They cause a lot of emails. <laughs> uh, follow us on Twitter, Very Bad Wizards, at Very Bad Wizards, at Peas, at Tamler. And to support us, go to the support page and click on the Amazon link. A portion of what you buy will go to us, and you can donate directly on PayPal. Oh, and rate us on iTunes. We're so close to 100. Come on. <laughs> We're so close. We're like at 95. Oh, don't make them like you to five one-star reviews. <laughs> I'd take that at this point. <laughs> I want 100. Uh, uh, okay, so we want to just quickly uh, wrap up with Josh, since we have him here, about the true self. So one of the things that I was – one of the points that I, I was going to raise, and I think it's consistent with what Tamler was going to raise as well, is that – Really about the link between the true self and moral responsibility. So, so one of the things that we find in our paper on meta desires is it seems to be meta desires that are driving, or the conflict between a meta desire and a lower order desire that's driving judgments of moral responsibility. Josh uh, presented some evidence that it's actually judgments of the true self that seem to be uh, underlying it. But, but here's one question: Imagine that somebody gets drunk. Alcohol intoxication is such a great example for this stuff. So, somebody gets drunk. And uh, reveals their true self by doing something that they regret or wish they hadn't done. All right, so they say, so Tamler gets really drunk and he starts touching me and places my bathing suit covers. Um, <laughs> and so. But I thought you said I, that I wish I hadn't done. Uh, that you wish you hadn't done. Yeah. So I wanted. To- <laughs> Jesus Christ, you guys like took like 10 seconds to get it. Yeah, sorry. Um, so now. I think it's. I think it makes sense to say his true self is that of a, of a sexual predator, but he is not as responsible because he was drunk, right? And he and he had a second order desire that to not do that. So he knows, like he has these temptations around me, he, but he's constantly suppressing them. And when he's drunk, it's revealed that this is really what he is. Is this like a f- what you fantasize about? <laughs> I read of some fan fiction. Um, is there a disjoint between does does your view capture the lay intuitions about moral responsibility when you're responsible? You know, it, it's really striking that in the case you just described, I get exactly the intuition you say that he's not nearly as responsible for it. If he was trying his best always to suppress his true self, but he couldn't suppress his true self, say, because mm-hmm. he, he was intoxicated. But in the reverse case where it's something morally good, I don't get that intuition at all. Like, So you know Mark Twain's story of Huckleberry Finn? Mm-hmm. So... Um, he has this feeling of compassion for this slave, Jim. But he thinks that's totally wrong and bad. It's completely a mistake on his part. He really wishes that he could stop feeling compassion for this guy. He thinks he's going to go to hell if he does that. But he just can't help himself. And he ends up helping Jim out. In that case, I wouldn't say, well, it's not his fault he ended up helping Jim out. He, he's, he, like His uh, meta-desire was to not want to help out Jim. I would say, yeah, of course he deserves praise for that. So from that famous paper, the, 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 there's also the Hermann Goering case. The idea was that he had... Say which famous papers. This is called... Uh, this, uh, what is this called? Well, this is not Jim. By Jonathan Bennett. It's called... You don't know? 
These two yeah. philosophers don't even know. You know? No. <laughs> All right. Wait, well, do, do your listeners know we'll, that David Pizarro is now teaching a philosophy class? <laughs> I know. Wait, I, I feel like that's your true self. It's, we, well, we've known that for a long time. Yeah, he's much more of a philosopher than I am and, I and a Kantian. Oh, His no. true self is a Kantian philosopher. <laughs> that's what it is. Uh, uh, yeah, I think it was Fiery or Josh Green said, isn't it amazing to when you realize that your true self is that of a mediocre philosopher? <laughs> 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 so so the Hermann Goering case is he had these feelings of compassion for Jews, but he thought he was doing the right thing, like this duty to to suppress that. And there, your view would predict that we would say his true self were the feelings, right? So in other words, your theory predicts that Hermann Goering is like a really nice guy. It predicts that deep down there's something with at his true the core of his true self, there's something calling him to be good. So suppose that one day, he was just so overcome with compassion that he couldn't go through with the thing that he did. The view I was seeing predicts that people would not, in that case, say he's going against his true self. That they wouldn't say, you know, his true self was calling him to kill the innocent person, but he betrayed his true self by not doing that. But Dan, is, is your conception of the true self connected tightly to moral responsibility, to blameworthy judgments, praiseworthy judgments? No, but, you know, I think that maybe it helps explain the effect that Dave originally discovered a really long time ago with this interesting asymmetry. But he is totally right that if you get really drunk and your true self comes out, you do something bad, but you had always been suppressing it, it does seem in that case that maybe we would say well, I mean, less we blameworthy, some, right? We have this the, the finding in that paper that if you just tell people, I, they, people say, I wish I weren't such a sucker, but they have like these overwhelming feelings of sympathy and they give to the homeless person. That is like the That's Huck, Huck Finn case. But do you think Huck Finn doesn't deserve praise for what he did? Well, no, but we have data. <laughs> <laughs> so we ran the study. So what's the difference between Huck Finn and, and this? The difference is that we know a whole shit ton about Huck Finn. Right. And that's informing our true self view of Huck Finn. But if you just ask people and you say, like, he really reflects and wishes that he didn't have sympathy for poor people, you get the effect that, that I predict, mm -hmm. not the one that you predict. Oh, so the reason that we make the Huck Finn judgments is just because we love Huck Finn. Yeah, we know a whole bunch. Huck Finn yeah. is the, the protagonist, right? Like, he's the, we want to love, we're motivated to love Huck Finn. So we say, we say the true self of Huck Finn is the one that saves Jim. Wait, so you're saying you think, imagine some person who is driven by compassion to help others, but just thinks, I wish I wasn't driven by so much compassion. You think no, the I don't true think self, that I showed it. <laughs> no, you think that the true self of that person, people's judgments would be that that person's true self is. I don't know. All I know is that their meta desires are, are what seem to be driving the judgment. So of responsibility. Which of, judgment? Of judgments of responsibility. Of responsibility. Yeah. So uh, if you want to call the deep emotional part, like the empathy part, the true self, then that is getting un overridden by their meta desires in these, in these cases. Right? So mm -hmm. it could just be that true self doesn't track responsibility mm -hmm. in the way that meta desire does in mm -hmm. the way that the alcohol cases. So we could tease apart the two. Um, because it makes sense to me. So this isn't uh, this isn't a criticism of the true self view. It's just that sometimes true self is not what you want for a responsibility judgment. Mm -hmm. What you want is inauthentic self stepped in and saved the day. Yeah, and in fact, could be make him more praiseworthy in that case. Like with the pedophile case, for most of us who are lucky enough not to be attracted sexually to children, like we don't, we deserve no credit for not molesting children, right? right. We're right, just, right. Uh, but that, but when you actually have to overcome something that's deep down a part of you, that can actually add to the responsibility. It reminds me of that Cohen and Rosin paper. Do you, so do you, what do you think of that finding that um, the, the guy who hates his parents 
deep down he hates his parents but he never shows them this and he helps them and he's a good son um and the question is does he deserve praise or does he deserve blame you know now our conversation becomes full circle because the main result of that is that it depends on whether you're a jew yeah that <laughs> um jews tend to say well yeah just do the right thing so do we get that intuition here Like I think he's a he's a kind of a dick. Well, what's the bad. case? Is he doing a good? Does he does, oh, does he deserve praise? Does he deserve praise? I would for that? say yes. Yeah, I would say yes too. I and I think I I think I've come around to the Jewish way of thinking. Oh, needs <laughs> to happen when you spend this long in a university. <laughs> Plus, the, we run the media. Like, uh, what was the la what was the last thing we were going to talk about? Um, whether your was, true self comes out when you're about to die. Oh yeah yeah. Yes, so you know um, my colleague George Newman, who who was first author on all these true stories. George studies. on here, he's great. You know George is so great. I think he's kind of an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> so George started thinking, you know, maybe um, people think that your true self is just revealed by whatever you do last. I don't know, like like the way um, the key that a certain piece of music is in is revealed by the last note. So he um, he ran these series of study about someone say say you're an asshole like your whole life. Then finally you start thinking, you know, maybe I should change my life. I should just do be a decent person. You start doing all these really nice things. You do them for like two weeks and then you're run over by a car and you're dead. So basically you're just a terrible person for almost all your life except two weeks. But they were the last two weeks. And then people think it's those last two weeks that reveal your true self. I have a prediction. Catholics will go for that view. They explicitly say that... that you can just confess right at the end and you're fine, no matter how bad a life you've led. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, they get the finding, though, that if you do the bad thing right before you die, it's also yeah. your true self. It's, yeah. so, so no matter what, your, your true self is the thing you were doing right before you die, because it's the last information we have of you. Wait, it's somehow that, that reveals, like, are you... Yeah, like Darth Vader. Yeah. Did that you feel like... It was his whole life that wasn't his true self, except for the last like five minutes of it. Yeah, which he could he could like just destroy billions of people like with the Death Star, you know, and make make whatever queen uh, make Leia wash as as everybody dies, and then like he does one good thing, and he's totally in Jedi heaven at the end. You know, it's like, wait, he made That's the right. Jedi heaven? Like, <laughs> he blew up the, the like, like a planet, right? <laughs> Apparently Jedi God is yeah. a utilitarian. <laughs> you know, we discussed actually in our paper um, Darth Vader and uh, Milton. So, uh -huh. so both George Lucas and Milton, they have like these evil characters, but you see in both cases that there's something deep within them at their very core calling them toward the good. It seems like people, there's something that really resonates in, in, to us about this idea that no matter how evil you are, there's some still small voice within you calling you, don't did, be such a douche. Did Milton go back and like fuck up his earlier works like with new technology? <laughs> and, and then also like, and also just put out just atrocious sequels to Paradise Lost. <laughs> yeah, Paradise Regained. <laughs> oh! That's true. It's the same dude. Um, so <laughs> What's the analog of Jar Jar Binks? <laughs> In Paradise Regained. Uh, so here's the strategy, because I know Tamler's going to fuck this up. I know you're not going to know when you die. So you won't, what you need is the last two weeks. Right. So set up your Google account to send out a bunch of emails when you die that are 
like predated. <laughs> right. You could say it was like a server error. <laughs> Donate money. Tell your like yeah. like family all how much you love them. Like like uh, donate donate to all of the good charities. Even when like and then boom, you got it done. Google Google has a solution for everything. <laughs> uh, take advantage of the Darth Vader effect. Sign up now. All right. Yeah, you guys, because you guys, both of them have a, a, a plane to catch. Indeed. We do. I'm going to have empty nest syndrome. So did we get a mad? You almost got a mad. Like this I know. Time. <laughs> you were like, there was a, there was a moment. So uh, maybe when, we, when you come on the third time, we're getting closer. <laughs> we, can, we can finally do it. Well, thanks very much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me.